Welcome to the Western Bow podcast series with talks on traditional spiritual teaching and its application in the world today. The intention of the series is to offer something useful for those who are drawn to study themselves and engage practice on the spiritual path. New talks are posted twice each month. The content of the talks is for informational purposes only and not to provide any kind of counseling, medical, or professional advice. This podcast is titled The Direct Path, Taking the Backward Step. The talk was given by Peter Cohen on October 7, 2023, via Zoom. Peter was the drummer for the Western Bell Rock Band, Liars, Gods, and Beggars, from 1988 to 1994. He has followed the non-dual path and rhythm of life in Alaska and Idaho as a nurse and as a musician. In this talk, Peter offers an experiential exercise, a way of bringing attention to looking at what we are looking out of. He speaks about being aware of being aware as a backward step. When we step back into ourselves as far as we can go, what do we find? Peter considers ancient principles of non-duality and the teaching as it is presented in the world today. If there is benefit in this talk for you, please consider sharing the link to it or writing a review on social media, or on one of the podcast platforms. Peter Cohen. So the direct path is kind of a subspecies of what generally is known as non-duality. But the term non-duality has been so rendered devoid of meaning anymore because it's become so popular and it's the flavor of not just the year, but the decade, it seems. There's many non-dual teachers out there. And some of them are very good. A lot of them are just conceptual because non-duality as a concept is very attractive. The mind can really latch on to non-dual concepts. And that's a good thing. And it's also its trap. So the direct path is a more refined articulation of non-dual principles. And the backward step, which we'll talk about during most of this talk, is the actual practice, the actual what you do. The direct path is not my term. It's been given by a number of teachers out there. They use that term, and I I like it. I think it's accurate in the sense that to practice the backward step, you don't need any particular lineage or guru or fancy rituals. And when I first came into this teaching of the direct path, I was admittedly quite the zealot and thought maybe it was the only thing one would ever need. And it could be, it may be so. But by the time I was introduced to it, I already had a teacher with a lineage. So I've been kind of corrupted. (laughs) I see the benefit of having a teacher with a lineage I think that eventually, whatever you do, whoever you study with, eventually you have to come upon the principles that are encoded in the direct path and in the backward step. Eventually, all roads do lead there. It's just that you don't have to just narrow yourself to just that. Although I would, before I dive into this by way of warning, any path that creates Too much complication is not going to serve you very well. And one of the 
features of the direct path and one of its attractions is that it's very, very simple. And so even if you do combine the direct path with a teacher or a lineage and other kinds of rituals, just be on guard against too much complication. The mind loves complication. It feasts on complication. The direct path is very simple. And like I said, that's its real strength. And it's like everything on the path toward awakening, that's also its primary trap. How simple it is can so easily be missed. Some people that I've talked to about this have protested that it sounds like it's a form of spiritual bypassing because it seems like it doesn't address psychology very much. It doesn't address the ordinary egoic neuroses that most of us have. My answer to that is that one teacher, the way he put it was, if you walk into a dark room, you're going to bump into the furniture there. You're going to bruise yourself. And if you try to address your human egoic conditioned neuroses in a dark room, it's going to be bruising. The direct path is aimed at shedding some light into that room so that you can negotiate the human condition stuff, all that furniture, with some degree of finesse. At least you'll be able to see what you're bumping into with a lot more clarity. So it seems to me, and in my own life, by practicing the direct path, it's enabled me to deal with the human condition stuff with a lot more skill. All right. Again, the reason why it's called the direct path is because in and of itself, it does not depend on a whole array of lineage, ritual, teachers, gurus. It doesn't rely on those, although it's useful. In my own case, it's been useful to have teachers who regard themselves as coaches more than as, um, in traditional paths, the guru figure. The teachers that I've mostly associated with do not regard themselves as gurus. They more regard themselves as coaches or guides because the direct path, there's some subtlety involved and it's easy to practice it in a way that's not uh, really useful. So it's useful to have a guide or a coach. It's still very simple, does not require the whole apparatus of the more progressive traditions that a lot of us are familiar with. My gateway to this whole scene was Douglas Harding many, many years ago. Douglas Harding was this very endearing British guy, and he developed a bunch of exercises. He called his way the headless way, and you'll see what he means by that in a minute. I'm going to actually invite you to Follow along with his instructions. Rather than putting it in my own words, I'm going to use his words. I think they're better than anything I could say. But I'd like you to follow along and follow his primary practice. This is the primary practice that Douglas Harding articulated. And it is a form of the backward step. So this is the first introduction to what the backward step actually is. So take your finger, any finger, but the index finger will do. And 
look at your finger. And I'm going to read Douglas here. Look at your finger, which is the great instrument we employ here, and look at what your finger is pointing at. Start off by pointing at the ceiling. You will see that your finger is a thing, and it is pointing at another thing. It may be a light fitting. It may be the ceiling. They've both got color, the ceiling or the light fitting and the finger. They've both got shape. They've both got position. Your finger is a thing, and it's pointing at a thing. Now bring your finger down and point to the wall below the ceiling. Again, what you are pointing at has a color just like your finger has color, and it has shape just like your finger has shape. It's thing to thing, isn't it? This is a live workshop he's giving. He's saying you can point at Douglas's head now. If you're pointing at Douglas, you're pointing at a rather decayed and ancient meatball with a beard on it. Now turn your finger around and point down to the floor. You will see again a thing indicating a thing, a colored finger pointing at a colored floor. Now point to your lap, and you've got the same story. It's a finger which has color, and it's a thing, and your lap is also a thing, and it's got color and qualities. Now point to your tummy. Turn your finger around and point to your tummy. Look at what you're pointing at. It's thing to thing. Your finger's a certain color, the tummy's another. Now point to your chest. It's much the same, isn't it? Now point to what's above your chest. Point to what you're looking out of. What is your finger pointing at now on present evidence when you drop imagination, drop conditioning, dare to be your own authority, and look at where you're coming from? What is your finger pointing at? Is it pointing at an object, a solid, small, limited thing for relating to those other things out there? Or is it pointing at room for those things out there? Is it pointing at capacity? Keep your finger in position now, would you? And keep looking at your finger, but primarily look at what your finger's pointing at. Isn't what it's pointing at boundless, going on and on forever? Isn't what it's pointing at totally and transparently transparent and speckless? And isn't this speckless, boundless capacity in receipt of the scene, of the room, of the wall? and what you were looking at. Because it is empty of the scene, isn't it absolutely united with the scene? Isn't it awake? Isn't it alive to itself? Will you find awakeness anywhere in the world but here? Isn't this where awareness or awakeness or I amness belongs? Does it belong anywhere but here? You're the authority. We are always looking at things. What the blazes are we looking out of? So a handy way of rephrasing that is look at what you're looking out of. When you point your finger at what you think is your head, other people think you have a head. When I look at you, I see people with heads. But when I'm doing this, I don't have a head. I have emptiness. 
I have capacity for everything just on present evidence, not on what you've been told, not on what you see other people having. Other people looks like they have heads. But when you look at what you're looking out of, and by the way, hear what you're hearing out of and feel what you're feeling out of and go through every sensory apparatus you have and you can do the same thing. You can do this any old time. In fact, I do it numerous times throughout the day. Looking at what you're looking out of. There's no thing to thing. It's no longer thing to thing. It's thing to no thing. It's spacious. It's capacity. And how this relates to the backward step is that you've just taken a step back into yourself. You've ceased relating a subject to an object, the finger to an object, the finger to a ceiling, to the wall, to your tummy, whatever. And suddenly it's no longer subject to object. It's no longer thing to thing. It's thing to no thing thing to capacity, thing to emptiness. This other ways into the backward step, but like I said, that was my first introduction to it. For me, it was absolutely revelatory. I don't know if that makes me strange, very strange, but that was a mind blower to me. Because when I went like this, indeed, it was like an implosion. Suddenly, there was no thing to thing. Okay, so I can move on. No questions, anyone? (laughs) To consider what it is that I'm looking out of, what is it that is aware? To me, that's a question with with no answer. Right. Well, we'll talk more about awareness and other practices of the backward step that lean on awareness. This one is more talking about awareness as capacity, as empty, like if you're looking at what you're looking out of, suddenly what I'm aware of or what's happening here is capacity for everything. There's nothing here. There's nothing there except capacity. It's empty of its own solidity, but open to everything. So in Douglas Harding's sense, awareness is more like capacity. That's the word he uses a lot. And that's a pretty good definition of awareness, that it's not a thing. Again, it's no longer thing to thing, but it's thing to no thing. Awareness is no thing. Well, what I think is that I, whoever I am, is looking out at everything. And it's this idea of myself that is perceiving everything. I mean, you're saying that it's much bigger than that. I'm looking out of nothing. I mean, looking out of emptiness. It's just empty of anything solid. So Douglas Harding's key phrase is, look at what you're looking out of. And Ken Wilber also has a very handy phrase, which is the simple feeling of being. If you step back, here's where we get the backward step. When you step back into yourself as far as you can go. Imagine, it's somewhat a game of imagination, but when you get there, you see it's realer than anything imaginary. 
because when you step back as far as you can go, all that's left is the feeling of being. And it's simple. Ken Wilber calls it the simple feeling of being. Like I said, this is a very simple practice, the backward step. The simple feeling of being. That's it in a nutshell. That's the whole practice because your being is the only thing that you know for sure. You can't be sure of anything else. There's absolutely nothing else in existence that you can be sure of except the fact that you are, that you exist. So you could say the simple feeling of your existence. So I find that very useful to step back as far as I can go into what I'm calling myself. And when you go as far as you can go, all you can find is being. And you can't even call it myself. You just can call it your existence if you need to call it anything. Another phrase that's used often by backward step teachers is who is looking out of your eyes right now or what is looking out of your eyes right now and what was looking out of your eyes yesterday what was looking out of your eyes five years ago what was looking out of your eyes when you were three years old if you investigate that you have to come to the conclusion that it's the same being. What's looking out of your eyes right now is not different than what was looking out of your eyes when you were a kid, which is why it's almost universal, the sensation that most of us have, that even though when we look in a mirror and we see our physical face, we don't look like we did when we were five years old. But the awareness that's looking hasn't changed. And it's also the same for everybody. Every being in the world, it's the same being. When we talk about we're all one, we're all together, there's no essential difference between us as human beings. That's what is meant. The awareness of being, the awareness of existence, that which is looking out of your eyes, is the same thing that's looking out of Donald Trump's eyes. Or I could say Rupert Murdoch's eyes. Can you believe it? Amazing, isn't it? I know it's hard to accept, but there you go. So that's another backward step into what's looking out of your eyes and recognizing that it's the same thing that's always been looking out of your eyes. It hasn't changed. Everything else has changed. Your physicality has changed. Your beliefs have changed. Your attachments have changed. Your neuroses have changed, we hope. I can agree and and I, I can feel that I'm the same being as I was when I was five years old. But why would you say that my experience or my perception is the same as everybody else's? How would you know? Why would you say that? That is a good question. You know, I've never questioned that. It just seems obvious, but you're right. It should be questioned. It deserves questioning. It seems to me that this sense of being has to be one. I don't know if I can prove that. I can't prove it. But it makes intuitive sense to me what's true about being, not my being, but being. Because when I access this simple feeling of being back to Ken Wilber's phrase, the simple feeling of being. It's no longer my being. 
if what I contact when I contact the simple feeling of being has any sense of Peter Cohen to it, then it's not pure being. You have to go back a little further to being itself. And that has to be the same as everybody's being. And it's a good question, but I guess it's just intuitively, yes, of course. But that's for each of us to determine for ourselves, I think. So you're talking about being without the overlay of personality or even one's experience in life. Yeah. We're going to touch on that here coming up as we uh, proceed. I'm going to use a lot of Ajashanti in this talk, who's been one of my main teachers. Aja talks about or actually leads people into trying to find the me that's supposed to be there. You think there's a me there, but if you were to really investigate where this me is that you think is there, you're going to come up empty. It's like an onion that you're going to peel layers off of endlessly, and there ain't no core there. There's no me there. You're always going to find layer after layer of qualities that you can use to describe a me, like your gender, your age, your profession, your interests, history. All of those are descriptions of a me that's supposed to be there. But if you continue to peel away, what you come to is that being we're talking about, which is not a me. It's just being, just existence. So that's something for each of us to investigate on our own. But I would wager that if you're really earnest with this, that you're not going to find a me there. You're just going to find qualities and descriptions, but you're not going to find an actual me. Douglas Harding was my gateway, but eventually I ended up with Aja, Aja Shanti, and also Rupert, Rupert Spira. And I'm going to talk a little bit about Rupert's terminology. This guy is really smart and really articulate. So he calls being the light of pure knowing. I'm going to riff on this for a little bit. These are my own words. Every conceivable thought, feeling, perception, or sensation would not be experienceable by you unless it was lit up to be known. So it's funny. If you put a brain under an fMRI, if you're familiar with that technology, certain portions of the brain light up when it's stimulated in certain ways. If you're in an fMRI machine and you're given a task to do or you're given something to smell or you're given something to look at, different parts of your brain light up, actually. And I find that very interesting because that corresponds with Rupert's terminology of the light of pure knowing. Any sensation, perception, thought, or feeling would not be experienceable unless it were lit up. And that lighting of experience is the same thing as being. It's equivalent to what we've been talking about as being or existence, that light of pure knowing. There's no thought unless there's an awareness of that thought, another way of putting it. 
There's no body, but only the sensations of various qualities. And those sensations must be known to be experienced. And what is it that knows those sensations? What is it that lights up those sensations so that they can be known? No trees or walls or people or clouds, only the perceptions which must be known to be experienced. And what is it that lights up those perceptions so that they can be known? I'm referencing the light of pure knowing is the answer quotes to all these questions. No emotions, only the feelings of them, which must be known in order to be experienced. And what is it that lights up those feelings so that they can be known? The light of pure knowing. Here's a quote from Rupert. All that is known of a mind, body, or world are thoughts, sensations, and perceptions. All that is known of thoughts, sensations, and perceptions are thinking, sensing, and perceiving. All that is known of thinking, sensing, and perceiving is the knowing of them. Thus, all that is ever known is knowing, and it is knowing that knows itself alone. The only thing that awareness knows is awareness. Awareness doesn't know anything else but itself. And Rupert's saying same thing here. Thus, all that is ever known is knowing. And it is knowing that knows itself alone. Thoughts, sensations, perceptions, all are reducible to knowing over the light of pure knowing. And it is the light of pure knowing that knows itself alone. So that's pure non-duality. Knowing that knows only itself. To me, that's what makes this so simple. It reduces the whole universe of spiritual ideas and spiritual concepts and spiritual teachings and spiritual on and on and on to simply being aware of being aware. If the only thing that is aware of being aware is awareness itself or knowing, the only thing that knows anything is knowing itself or the light of pure knowing. I like that phrase because it denotes that lighting up of experience. Nothing would be experienceable unless it were lit up so that experience can occur. All there is to a thought is thinking, and all there is to thinking is knowing. All there is to an emotion is feeling, and all there is to feeling is knowing. All there is to a sensation is sensing, and all there is to sensing is knowing. All there is to a perception is perceiving, and all there is to perceiving is knowing. Thus, all there is to experience is knowing, and it is knowing that knows this knowing. Being all alone, knowing or pure awareness is whole, perfect, complete, indivisible, and without limits. There you have non-duality in a nutshell. Here's another way to approach this, and it is a backward step again. I'm paraphrasing Rupert here. If you were to ask God what name he would give to himself, he would say, I. In fact, that's exactly what he did. I am that I am. I is the name that whatever knows itself gives to itself. Let me repeat that. I is the name that whatever knows itself gives to itself. 
So when you say I, referring to yourself, that's a portal. If you were to follow that I, again, as far back as you can go, you would encounter pure existence or pure being. And you could call it I. And like Nizagadarta would say, I am, I am that. Whatever he would encounter, whatever he would perceive, think, feel, sense, it was always I. He lived from that being. He had taken a backward step as far as he could take it and had ended up with I. Whatever knows itself gives to itself that name, I. It's a holy name. I is God's name in each of us. That's a quote from Rupert. I is God's name in each of us. Now, being aware of being aware, it's a similar backward step, but it's another way of phrasing it. If you can become silent enough so that you can be aware of awareness itself, you'd be taking the backward step. The tricky part of it is that awareness is not an object. So when you're aware of awareness, again, like that pointing finger, it would not be thing to thing. Being aware of being aware is taking you out of the subject-object field once again. It's catapulting you out of that whole duality. So it's tricky. Being aware of being aware, you have to approach it very gently. You can't insist upon finding an object there. Just the same way as when you look in the mirror and you see your physicality has changed from when you were five years old, but your being hasn't changed. Your being is the same. That takes becoming quite silent and allowing that collapse of subject and object to occur. If this whole discussion sounds very heady, it doesn't have to. Rajashanti, in particular, brings this whole practice down to the level of the heart and even further to the level of the gut. His teaching makes a definite distinction between awakening at the level of the head, which is more like clarity, awakening at the level of the heart, which is more relational, and awakening at the level of the gut, which is more existential, the very base of your existence. I'm paraphrasing Ajit here. The eye that is always awareing, if it has any quality whatsoever, it is that it is conscious, it is awake, it knows that it is. It doesn't know what it is, but it does know that it is. That's the I. It doesn't know what it is, but it knows that it is. And that's the same with that simple feeling of being. You can't know what being is, but you can know that it is. And that's, in fact, the only thing you can know for sure. The only thing you can ever know for sure this whole universe is that you are. You can't figure out what you are, but you can know that you are. So the feeling quality of that awareing is the one heart. It's awareing from your experiencing center as opposed to your conceptual center. If you can back up into yourself and become aware of awareness, 
but not just as a concept, but feeling it here. To be aware with the heart, with intuitive feeling, to bring the heart and the one eye together is being. Being aware of being aware can get you there to the heart. But with Aja's teaching, it's more intentional. It's really being aware of awareness from here. So this whole consideration of the backward step is not just a way of awakening at the level of the head or the mind. If practiced fully, it awakens the heart. And Aja is saying the movement from I am this to just I is the whole game. Not just think into I, but to feel into the I. So we're so habituated into thinking, I am this. I am cold. I am hungry. I am lonely. I am smart. I am stupid. On and on and on. And that's the habit most of us have. But to reduce it to just I, without any qualifier, and to feel that in here, that is the instruction. That's the eternal I outside of time. And you have it as much as Jesus and Buddha and Ramana. It's the same eye, the same awareness that's looking out of your two eyes, the same that look out of their eyes, no different from what has looked out of every sage and saint who ever lived. Aja was not big on lineages or gurus, and this is why he thinks that people take it for what it's worth. People who put too much devotion towards a teacher who is supposedly better and more than they are, are missing the boat. They don't have any more I than you do, no matter who they are. One more point that I wanted to bring up, this consideration of spiritual bypassing, I just wanted to touch on that. All the garbage that we want to clear up in our conditioning, the most effective solvent that dissolves conditioning is awareness. There's many ways you can deal with conditioning in a remedial way. You can go to therapy, you can progress in a remedial way, but the ultimate solvent to all our neurotic issues is awareness itself. If you can imagine all the aspects of your conditioning as little entities that just want to be loved. They just want to come into the light, again, the light of awareness. That's what they're looking for. If you can welcome all those problematic parts of yourself into the light of awareness, awareness itself will do the work much more effectively than any psychotherapy can ever do. Not that you shouldn't have psychotherapy at certain points along the way, but the ultimate solvent for all that stuff is awareness or existence or being, whatever word you want to use. So unless there's some comment, I'd like to turn this over to a Buddhist perspective. Well, the teaching of non-duality is the crown jewel of Buddhism. And even though there are practices that are incredibly elaborate, Throughout Buddhism, this is the crown jewel. I certainly agree with most of your description of awareness, but I think it would be a little tricky for me because 
there are too many questions that you ask of awareness and too much you ask it to do. I'll just tell you the simplest practice that we use. You can go all the way through Buddhism. You can go all the way to the very end. And then they give you this. After many, many years of all these other practices, they give you this. And the this is so simple, so very simple. And it's basically a little bit different. It's called separating mind from awareness. And we have practices called separating samsara from nirvana. So you're separating mind from awareness. And the way I've presented this is in meditation, well, you have to get the proper relationship to your thoughts. You have to be able to identify your thoughts. Awareness is presented as the clear blue sky. You know, you're looking at the clear blue sky. Some clouds come along. That's thought, right? Then when the clouds come along, we start paying attention to the clouds. We start paying attention to thought, and then we're gone. But awareness is beyond all of that. It's the background for all of that. So you just become familiar with separating those two. And with doing so, you become more able to rest in the pure awareness that is the sky. That's the simplest, although there's some extremely complex activities to arrive at that simple point. Good. Thank you. Well, non-dual teaching, I would say, probably is the crown jewel or the core of Hindu teaching as well. The Upanishads, Advaita Vedanta, all get down to this, really. But the way that non-dualism is practiced in the West, at least as much as I've heard, I'm no expert on this, but from what I've seen, we can consider the truth. And that's not the truth, how we consider it. To me, it seems like a backward step can be like withdrawing into oneself, into this state of this peaceful place. But what I've seen is that the greatest realizers, many of them were working constantly. They worked constantly. Mm-hmm. Many of them really worked with their students. The only way that I can grok this is that the silence that sometimes occurs for me when I'm in meditation or something, when I might say I've taken some steps back, when I'm in the midst of activity, that all goes away. All of a sudden, all of the dualistic emotions, lust and greed and competitiveness, and everything else comes up. My understanding of the path, there are many different paths, but I think (laughs) probably non-dualism rests at the center of them. But in working with this, with what we have, we need our own work and we need help. And the vehicle has to be prepared. After you go through this whole process, then finally they tell you about this or that you finally get this. My experience has been that I've had to go through a process to be able to really make use of non-dual teaching in a way that I wouldn't have been able to 40 years ago. And wherever I'm at now is just beginning (laughs) also. So just to look at this truth and believe that it's all done on one level, that's true. On another level, I think that there's a lot of shadow 
that shows up on the path with very experienced practitioners who haven't done other kinds of work on themselves. Now, uh, for myself, I'm cautioning myself because I have a mind that loves complication. That's the nature of mine. Mind, that's what it feasts on, is complication. Problems, solving problems, that's what it does. It's its nature. I would just caution against unnecessary complication. And by the way, non-dual teachers that I've respected are very much in the world, very active, very functional human beings. Nizagadarta, for one, ran a uh, tobacco shop. Ramesh Balsikar is another guy I really like. He was the president of the Bank of India, banker, a big shot, major uh, financial guy. Yet he was totally awake, however you want to define that. He was a guy that I would call a non-dual teacher. What I'm talking about here, being aware, being aware, and that whole thing, the back of the step is not in opposition to being functional and delighting in life, delighting in, in all the feast of the world, this phenomenal world, absolutely. In fact, it makes you more available to all that good stuff. Does non-dualism have a consideration or opinion of what happens to us after we die, after our body dies? No, because what's happening right now is what's happening after, quote, we so-called die. It's no different. This is it. <laughs> this is all it is. This is it. There is no going anywhere. You're already there. You're already here. And you won't be going anywhere else. You, meaning you, the I, that you are, is not going anywhere. Even though it's used often by non-dual teachers, I don't even think that karma has a role in true non-duality. I think it's just a neat way for the mind to make things more understandable to the mind, to account for how things seem to have turned out. And so that's an alternative way of thinking or belief system than something like Christianity or, let's say, Gurdjieff. I would say, wouldn't you? I'm somewhat familiar with Gurdjieff's teaching, but I don't know what his stance was about karma or after death. Certainly, it's different from what I call exoteric Christianity, Christianity based upon beliefs. It's very different from that. But it's not different from esoteric Christianity, like Meister Eckhart taught, and the Desert Fathers, not different from that. I don't know what Gurdjieff had to say about after death. That there is some preparation that we could be doing in this lifetime, whether it be for heaven or whether it be towards some continued life in another form. Whereas what I'm getting from you is to simplify it is sort of like be here now. And I'm asking, is that the end point of the teaching, so to speak? Yeah, because reality is reality. Reality doesn't change after the body goes. Reality is what it is. There's no change there. That's what I mean by complication. All these systems strike me as just the mind's way of making sense of phenomena. I don't think there's anything to it, any of that. My humble, ever so humble opinion. We have a lot of those preliminary practices in Buddhism, those extremely 
complicated practices, but they all have at their core this understanding. And you're always creating things and then dissolving them, creating and dissolving so that you see after years and years of doing it, that there's nothing behind that. Trungpa Rinpoche taught Ati, as we say, or Zogchen, or the non-dual path from the very beginning, from the very get-go. And then everything else was introduced. If you could use them to see directly into the nature of awareness, that would be terrific. But most people can't. They have to go through years and years of this stuff. And it limbers the mind up. It opens the mind to being able to empty itself. The mind is more able to empty itself and then to catch the moment of awareness. But all in all, there are many similarities. And my other teacher was Ramana Maharshi, and he just taught it by his being. If we could get that, that'd be great. It would be great. I would like to mention, too, as long as we're talking teachers, about my own teacher, Lee Lazowick. Mm-hmm. Right from the time he started teaching, he used the phrase just this, yeah. what he called assertion. And then he didn't speak about it for another 10 years. Mm-hmm. Then he didn't speak about it for another 10 years after that. In retrospect, I realized that it's true. I needed to be limbered up. The way that I rigidly looked at life couldn't hold this. And I just wonder if non-dualistic teachings can be the mind's way of making sense of reality so that it avoids limbering up. I think that, I don't know what percentage, maybe 75% of the teachers now calling themselves non-dual teachers and having followings on YouTube and such are conveying something that doesn't have the juice, doesn't serve anybody. It's just conceptual because the mind loves non-dual ideas as much as it loves karmic ideas or ideas about heaven and hell. You know, you name it, the mind loves that stuff. That loves non-dual ideas as much as it loves all that stuff. But what I've tried to do today is, is to ask you to experientially follow with me, like with the finger thing or stepping back into yourself, actually doing it. Not theoretical, just really doing it. There's a difference. Well, so any belief system can make us feel secure, whether it's an explanation of reality or an exoteric religion. Our task, I guess, is to look beneath that and observe ourselves and see how we might be making use of a philosophy rather than trying to survive as a separate individual. And I can even use non-dualistic teaching to do that be out of touch with that, maybe. You were involved in a rock and roll band. Yes. Do you feel like you would have been able to use the non-dual teaching as you do today, or to have plumbed it to the depths that you had if you hadn't done things like that? Uh, Good question. That's what I meant at the very beginning when I said that I was corrupted early by having a teacher and by his having put me through terrific stresses, like in the Gurdjieffian sense. Yes, I was put through very strong stresses in the school and in that band and in other ways. And it has served me. It has served me tremendously. I'm very grateful for all of it. 
So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm a believer in everyone finds what they need when they need it. As long as they have what Ms. Gadarda called earnestness, they'll find what they need. Everyone will find the help that they need. But I would just caution people in general and myself to not complicate things that don't need to be complicated. It occurred to me that when you said that we peel the onion and keep peeling and there's nothing there. Me. There's no me there. Right. I've heard that many times before, and I do question it. I believe that it can be a useful idea, but I think it can also be a very useful idea for me in my meat suit to find somebody there. And that's what I do. And I like that. And it's very useful to me, uh, just making that comment, that there are more ways to peel an onion than one. I would just suggest that as long as there's a me there, there'll be suffering also. That's what the Buddha meant by dukkha. That's the foundation of suffering. Like I said, the lack of a me does not mean that you won't be functional, highly functional. And highly enjoyable. Like Arnaud, a teacher who was close to Lee's school, Arnaud Desjardins, talked about being a bogey. A bogey is an enjoyer, someone who really appreciates life and all its multifaceted array of delights. And he was all for it. And in my opinion, he was as, quote, enlightened as they come. You know, I would mention this story, now that you mentioned Dono Desjardins, a student of his told me this. There was a student who was in a position in Arno Desjardins school, a really strong practitioner in a lot of ways. But one of the things that Arno said also is that you're only as strong as your weakest link. And then the student who was telling me the story said that after many years, he started making comments about this student who's in this place of authority about some things that he should look at and some things that would be useful for him to look at. And there was resistance to this and defensiveness to it. And then as time went on, the person withdrew more and more and finally left the school because we can have really matured in many ways, but there may be some way that really needs some work, some part of ourselves that we're blind to. I think in the Gurdjieff work, they talk about chief feature, something that someone told you about it, you wouldn't, you wouldn't believe them. And I do think that there are those aspects to ourselves that if we don't have some help, it's very likely, actually, that we'll overlook them. To me, I look at the spiritual scene today with so many scandals and like that, and I really think that most of the people involved in these kind of things are really well-meaning people and mature practitioners, and there's some area that needs some attention. There's one little wrinkle in all that. When I say that our conditioned neuroses and parts of ourselves that we would like to purify, it doesn't mean that you become perfect on the personality level. All the great 
teachers had their quirks and foibles. The only important thing is that those foibles and quirks are not the source of suffering for either themselves or others around them. The personality self, the me that has quirks and such, can be operative, but it doesn't define the I. It doesn't define what I is, and it doesn't have any impact on the I. Uh, Yeah, I so strongly believe, having had a teacher who had such an outrageous personality, I was forced to look at this fairly early on, and personality is a different thing. Personality is something that's separate from awareness or the person's immersion in awareness. It's just personality. We'll still be the same jerks that we are now. Yes, but there's something about, for people who have found themselves in that state, how their activity, their personality serves the whole. I mean, if non-duality is true, you're serving another aspect of yourself in a way. And I really don't think it's true for every spiritual authority. Trungpa Rinpoche seems to be the real deal, from what I could tell. Gosh, the books by him are sublime. The riddles that are in the form of people like Trungpa Rinpoche, I'll never understand. I'm just at peace with not understanding whether they truly serve others to the degree they could have. I don't know. Worked for me. (laughs) There's some things that I just said that relate to this. No matter what doubts, what confusions arise, none of them affect the formless I. So the question, what do I do about whatever confusions, sufferings, neuroses, problems I'm experiencing? His advice is to welcome them all in, but from the formless I. Let them interact. That is, the neuroses with the formless eye. Don't do anything with it. Let the formless eye do what it does best, which is dissolve that stuff. Well, the stuff that needs dissolving, the other stuff is stuff that doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. There's a transformation that occurs when human conditioning is brought into the field of the formless eye. It's an alchemy that occurs. You can watch as the elements of human conditioning become transformed in the field of the formless eye. The formless eye is the eye that's distinct from the me, the eye that is awareness, the eye that is the unconditioned, that is what preceded our birth and will still be there after we die and has never changed and will never change. The secret is and has always been simplicity. As soon as we move into complexity, we get lost. That's its beauty. As soon as we move into complexity, the power of the self gets dispersed in a hundred directions, and then it loses its energy, loses its juice. That's the challenge and the beauty of simplicity. Those are words from Adya. I love that. 